So welcome to this episode of the Sun, the Moon and the Truth podcast. This is a podcast born of a year of conversation between my co-host Natalie Bachman and I about all of the things that we wished we had the opportunity to talk about with our yoga communities that we eventually thought maybe we could do in in this open forum. So our intention with these conversations is to create space and opportunity for learning and growth in a way that is playful and honest and messy and all of those things. So we invite people onto uh, this podcast who we would really like to learn from. And today we have a guest who we're really excited about, uh, Tracy Stanley, and I'm going to hand over to Nat to introduce her. Thanks, Karina. Uh, Tracy Stanley is my teacher um, and has been now for the last seven or eight years or so. And she is um, just overall a phenomenal human being. Uh, Tracy is someone who really lives and breathes what she practices and what she teaches. And um, you can tell that she really is an embodiment of what we, what we are, I think, all strive to be. Um, one of the things that we're wanting to talk with her about on this episode is this concept of becoming unshakable and how our practice, how our approach to life our understanding of the yoga teachings um, and beyond that uh, helps us to develop this capacity to be unshakable. So with that, I want to welcome Tracy um, and uh, give, herself, give her a chance to introduce herself a little bit as well, and then we'll dive into some questions. So Tracy, go ahead, love. Thank you so much for those beautiful introductions. I'm happy to be here with both of you. Um, you know, what can I say about introducing myself is really that I've been a yoga student um, for over 25 years. I've been sharing my understanding of the teachings for about 20 years. Um, I love being in community with others who are interested in deepening their own practice and understanding of yoga. Um, and I'm just here on this earth right now to create, share, inspire, rest, and awaken. Um, and so that's just what I'm, what I'm here doing. And very well, I might add. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. So we thought that we would start this conversation with an acknowledgement perhaps of the time that we're in and of, you know, everything that is, um, happened over 2020 and you know this first part of 2021 mm. and it feels like there has never been a time that I can remember at least where truth has felt like such a contested thing and I feel like it's an interesting question to ask just when it comes to our um, everyday human experience and I feel like it's also a really interesting question to ask when it comes to yoga practice you know what is truth how can we identify it and 
how can we develop the level of discernment that would allow us to know truth from untruth? Mm. So I feel like that's a sort of three questions in one to, to begin with, but I would love to hear your take on truth and discernment in a time mm. like this. Wow, that's such a beautiful question. And I expect nothing less, Farina, from you to come up with a just really rich, deep question for the first one. Um, you know, what I would say is that truth is not necessarily found in the waking state, right? And so we're constantly looking for it in the waking state. We're constantly looking for it in the external, right? We're constantly looking for it outside of us. And so truth is found inside and it's found specifically, and I'm only speaking in my own, from my own personal experience, right? That's the only thing that I can uh, speak about is it's really found in the transitions between the waking, the dreaming, the deep sleep and moving towards that portal of true understanding and knowing to the fourth state. And that is not going to be found necessarily in the machinations of our mind and in the machinations of our personality. And so we need to have some sort of practices that help us to peek behind the veil of the illusion that is our ego, that is all of our samskaras, that is all of our vasanas. And I feel like that's what yoga offers us is the ability to be able to tune in and really understand the vibration of those spaces so that we pay attention. And then when we are in the waking state, we actually have the ability to be able to pause. And in that pause is for me where the discernment comes in, because it means that I'm aware of, oh, there's this ego, there are these memories, there are these storehouse of memories, there are you know, all of the impressions. And that if I can pause and find transition in the waking, I have a moment to turn my face to the light of discernment and away from the kind of back and forth of everything that I'm used to, right? And so then I also think that we have to define what is truth right? Because truth is truth facts. It is truth wisdom, is truth inner knowing. And I think that each one of us has to define that for ourselves, because we can be sitting in this conversation talking about how to find truth, and we could all be talking about three different things. And then arguing that one of us is not correct, (laughs) right? Because we're talking about three different things. So I think that the thing that anyone who might be listening um, can really start with to answer that question for themselves is to ask, what is truth? What is truth? Do, Do I feel like I've ever experienced truth? And if I feel like I've ever experienced truth, what did truth feel like? What did it look like? What did it sound like? And then start to remember, because that's the other thing that yoga practice actually brings us into is this place of smirti, right? This place of not only retention, 
not only memory, but self-remembrance and remembrance of the truth. So I feel like you said something really interesting right at the beginning about uh, transitional moments and transitional spaces, because what I thought of when you said that is how we tend not to have um, very much interest in or respect for transition in the sense that it's something that we rush a lot, whether it's a transition in a, you know, an asana practice from pose to pose or whether we're so fixated on the destination in our everyday life that we want to rush through the process of getting there or, you know, transitions can so often be mindless rather than mindful and the idea that we might be able to open the door on truth in a space like that I feel like is a really interesting one and I wonder if you could um, dive into that a little bit more yeah and you know the thing is the other kind of question is are we afraid of truth Hmm. right what when I think about truth I think about power right I think about me being connected to my inner teacher to that place that uh, Swami Rama would have and had described as the place within you that knows and knows that it knows, right? And am I afraid of that place or am I welcoming of that place, right? And so the transitions are places where because we are so caught up in this kind of toxic grind culture where we continually have to do, we continually have to produce in order to be valuable, right? It doesn't allow for us to really sit back and observe any kind of transition. So if we think about the biggest transition, whether we're in a yoga practice or not, is this transition of sleep. And then if we look at the amount of people, and this is not a judgment, who have issues with insomnia or sleeping, sleeping not enough, not well, or intentionally denying and depriving themselves of hours of sleep that they know they need because they need to get things done. So there's not even an honoring of this sacred ritual that is the most healing thing that every human being can do in the way of sleep. So instead we try to find ways to hack our sleep. We have to, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen around sleep, but I think that our culture doesn't really honor it. It really is um, seen as something that's necessary, but necessary and how little can you get? because there's a badge of courage for people to say, oh, I only got three hours of sleep today or, and I'm still like doing, I'm still going after it. So I think that it is really important for us to understand that these transitions that happen naturally throughout our day, whether they are us sitting here in this moment and for those people who are listening to just observe the breath, just observe the breath for this this moment right now and noticing that there's a transition between the inhale and the exhale and just letting your awareness 
rest in the stillness of that transition, as opposed to the movement of the inhale and the exhale. And just see how that allows you to settle into something that is different than the motion of the mind, the motion of the day. It actually gives you a sense of peace and stillness that is available in every moment. And so I think the more we attune ourselves to what actually happens when we rest in stillness, because it may sound like, oh, it's all peace and bliss, but that actually may not be the case for many of us, right? And so when we get to observe that, we get to actually know ourselves even more. We get to unpack what's showing up. We get to dismantle what is true, right? Because we use our discernment and what is not true. And I think that that helps us to be more whole human beings. So the transitions that happen during the day, and like I said, there are many of them. We can talk about, you know, watching a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset, watching the moon rise, just taking a moment to, to even acknowledge um, the phases of the moon each night is also a transition, right? Um, that those bring us into deeper awareness. The, all of those places are portals. Um, to awareness, but we, there's a lot that we need to be aware of, of what kind of fill, starts to want to fill that empty space, right? Cause we're creating a natural pause or we're observing a natural pause. There's something that's going to try to fill that space. We need to observe what is it that's trying to fill that space so that we can become more aware of what's really going on um, with us and have more discernment. I hope that answers your question. It was a long tangent. <laughs> It does, it answers it beautifully, thank you. Um, and with that, I think I'll hand over to Nat because you picked up on this idea of the inner teacher. Um, and I think that that's something that we'd love to ask you about as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Going back to the inner teacher, the part of us that knows and knows that it knows. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Cause it's this sort of elusive concept, inner teacher, inner guide, how do we recognize it? How do we develop a relationship with it? And I think a lot of what you're already starting to speak to is something we can take into practice. But if you could dive into that even more for folks that might be struggling with the concept even. Mm. Yeah, so you know, one of the things that I think we can think about as opposed to framing it as inner teacher is what is intuition? Have you ever felt intuition? Have you ever felt a deep knowing, whether it was don't drive to the grocery store today or, you know, don't get into a relationship with this person or you're in a relationship with this person and something weird is happening, right? Or I'm about to get fired. You know, what, whatever those things are, when, when have you, and for those people listening, it's like, when have you listened to your intuition? What did it feel like when you got that wisdom of intuition? Was it a knocking? Was it a feeling of something dropping from the heavens? Was it something in your gut? What did it feel like? Because that's the first step is to recognize the moment that intuition descends and 
and it doesn't maybe descend. Maybe it comes, like I said, maybe it's in the navel center. But what does it feel like personally for you? And do you have any examples that you can think of from your past where you listened to your intuition and your intuition definitely guided you in the right place? And then on the flip side of that, were there any times where you heard the intuition loud and clear or felt the intuition and you didn't listen? And then later you were like, oh, I should have listened because I knew, I knew that I felt that, right? I think we can all <laughs> know, we all have experiences like that. And I think the more that we start to understand for ourselves personally, what does that feel like? Um, or what does that sound like? Because we all have a different experience. Some people, it feels like they hear the intuition. Some people, it feels like they feel the intuition. Some people actually see the intuition. They see something. Maybe it's in a dream. Maybe it's in a meditation. They see a flash of something. So just be able to start to cultivate a relationship with the understanding of how does your intuition show up, Right. What's the difference then once you start to feel into what that is, what is the difference between your intuition and you intellectualizing, right? Something, mm -hmm. right? And understanding the difference between what the vibration of the mind and the thinking mind, and even the subconscious mind coming into more of a surface level and something that literally seems to descend out of nowhere as a knowing. And I think that, again, that requires us to observe the transitions because we're so used to running and doing that we get that drop of intuition and we just keep going. And before we know it, we've forgotten it, right? And we don't remember until we get the hammer on the head that it's the wake up call. And then we're like, oh yeah, I remember I had that intuition. So it, it really requires us to slow down. And it doesn't mean that we have to slow down all the time because it's not possible for us to slow down all the time. But in the times that we can slow our breath down, like, you know, you're just sitting at your desk doing your work, you know, reading your emails, you can take that moment as a moment of awareness to say, okay, even though I'm reading my emails and I'm doing my work, I can simultaneously start to slow my breath down. I can simultaneously start to even out my breath and allow myself to come into a place of samavriti and start to you know, smooth out the breath and observe even the rise and fall and the pause in between. And I can start to incorporate and let practice start to flow through life. I don't need to be on my yoga mat in a yoga studio or on Zoom doing a class in order to be able to take in the tools that I have and start to let them flow in through my life. And I think that that will start to connect us in the everyday to our inner teacher, as opposed to just in the space of, you know, practicing meditation or practicing yoga asana or yoga nidra, whatever those things might be. Yeah. Along those lines, I've heard you mention quite a few times, especially recently, that the practice is the teacher. And 
referring to these, you know, more traditional concepts of what practice looks like, but then also this, where we're just pausing throughout the day, taking those opportunities to observe the transition, to be with the breath. How does that then translate into those opportunities, those experiences being our teacher? How are we guided even more by that? Mm, that's a great question. So the first thing that I would say is the practice itself offers you wisdom if you're paying attention. And it can be something as simple as the wisdom of what emotions, what memories am I holding in my physical body? Right? So let's just take that as an example. That's the teaching. It's like, here's, here's what's being held. Here's what you haven't released. Here's what we haven't let go of. Right. And then if we continue to kind of practice and listen, because that's the key to me is listening, we will be directed by our own practice, by our own inner knowing by our own body as to where and how to move forward. And I think that it's something to me that is much more present in a practice like yoga nidra or deep relaxation because we are still and because we are quiet. When we're doing more, and this is just my own personal experience, when we're doing more dynamic asana, it's still this process that we bring to it a lot of times because we're trained in this Western way of practicing yoga, which really has a lot of calisthenic um, fitness type of foundation underneath it, that there's still the act of doing, mm -hmm. of getting somewhere, of achieving something, right? And so when we do these practices that are more quiet practices of yoga, whether it's yin yoga, restorative yoga, even I would say a sound bath, even though that's not yoga necessarily, um, we could say it's not a yoga. So that um, those types of practices allow us to receive more information, more teaching, more wisdom, because we are still. And my experience with specifically the practice of yoga nidra has been that, you know, we talked about earlier, this idea of the truth, not being in the waking state, right? Mm -hmm. And that there's a veil kind of over the truth in the waking state. That veil to me is removed or loosened when we are in practices like yoga nidra. And that's where the teaching happens. That's where the teaching happens. The teaching happens in that space of the void. That teaching happens in the space of the heart. It happens in the in-betweens, those liminal spaces, the hypnagogic and the hypnopompic state. And in those places, hopefully, and this is one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of 
self-inquiry and free writing after practice. Because again, in the doing and the rushing, we get these beautiful downloads that may not even make sense in the moment, but then we rush off and we go to our next thing and we forget. So being able to use these practices of self-inquiry and of free writing allow us to translate the wisdom that descends in practice. And so we all we only we don't get to just receive the teachings, but then we actually get to embody them just a little bit because we are translating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as someone who definitely can identify as a doer, <laughs> as, <laughs> as a rusher offer, um, mm -hmm. those moments when I have been either encouraged in person or just had the, you know, the self-awareness to follow through and do the journaling and to do the free writing afterward. It feels as though all of those messages are just right there literally in my fingertips. And the process of the learning, the deep learning becomes accelerated. And when I don't, when I rush off, then I just slow the whole process down so much because I have to then go back and repeat and remember. And <laughs> so, yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that teaching. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. So something that you um, invited us to do on the Yoga Nidra training of yours, which I'm doing at the moment, uh, a little while ago, which I loved, was to spend some time considering what our definition of practice was. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this pulls on a few threads um, that have woven themselves through this conversation already. And it felt like such a nice question because uh, it felt like a permission slip that practice could be something other than, you know, we, we usually get told it is. So I wonder what your definition of practice is mm. and what your practice looks like mm. at the moment. Yeah, that's a great question too. Thank you. So, you know, it's interesting because um, my first introduction to this idea of sadhana um, was around, okay, you've got, you know, 40 days, you have to do the sadhana, you have to show up at the studio at 4.30 in the morning, and we're going to do this practice for two hours, and, you know, it's an everyday thing. And what I've, what I've felt in those moments from that very first kind of um, understanding of, of sadhana, we would notice, like, who was, who didn't show up, right? Like, the song, the, the sangha is there every, and it's like, oh, so-and-so didn't show up today. And there seemed to be a shame in you missed a day, right? That, that was the first thing that I remember feeling like, well, I'm definitely not going to miss a day because I don't want to be shamed. And then if there was ever a sadhana that was happening where I kind of knew that, okay, I'm working and I'm going to be shooting on this day and I might not be able to make it there at 4.30, then I'm just not going to do the sadhana, right? That was the, fir the first experience. 
And then the next experience in a different tradition um, was again with doing a long practice. Um, and what I noticed was that there was within the community, there was a competition. It was almost like a spiritual competition. Oh, how many, how many repetitions did you do? How many did you do? And it was always like, wow, there's this pressure that doesn't really match up with modern life to be able to do something in the same way, the same time, in the same place for a consistent amount of time. And so what I'm noticing is amongst my peers, there is a hierarchy kind of happening within the group because there's certain people who are like, oh yes, I sat down for three hours today and I did my practice. And there are other people who are like, oh, I have to start back from day one or they start, they leave the conversation when the conversation starts happening. And then I started to see that replicated also within my own students when I was giving practices, that there was shame attached to, I, I didn't make it, I couldn't do it, I have to start back over again. And it just felt to me like this was counterproductive, that it was really counterproductive because we already know the, the effect of just sitting down for five minutes and observing the breath or sitting down for three minutes and chanting a mantra. I mean, we chanted a mantra just before we started this call and that was less than a minute and a half and it already had shifted the energy, right? So to me, I started to feel like in order for me to, um, first of all, be able to uh, shift the way that I thought about practice, because I felt like for me, the masculine edges needed to be kind of shaved off a little bit because I can do discipline. I can show up, you know, but that's also in the doing. And so it felt like those edges for me needed to be kind of shaved off a little bit. And the more that I started to commune with the goddess in many of her forms, what I noticed was that I was becoming more devoted and that devoted was a form of discipline in its feminine way. That ritual was definitely something that felt really resonant with me. Um, and so I just started to think about how I could reframe um, practice, not only for myself, but for how others were approaching it. Because at some point, it organically happened that I was infusing yoga into all of my day, into all of my work, into all of my movies. We were trying to add little pieces of yoga here and there. And it was like, okay, so yoga, life is yoga. This, this life is a ritual. This life, I'm devoted to these practices. I'm devoted to this technology. I'm devoted to this philosophy. And so, like you just said, Karina, I gave myself a permission slip. Nobody told me this is what you should do. But I also felt like if I can let other people know that this is something that is possible, then it gives each person an opportunity to be able to allow 
practice to become devoted and that it doesn't matter if you can get onto your yoga mat for 30, 40, 90 minutes, because we have to look at how yoga has been commodified. That yoga has been packaged up in this little box to say, here's yoga because I wanna be able to sell this $30 class or whatever it is in the yoga studio. And we have become you know, kind of divorced from nature, right? We've been, and our practice has just become something a little bit different than maybe it was intended to be. Um, so yeah, so that's how I look at it. I really feel as though we have to have agency around our practice. And then once we have that agency and we understand this is, this is what my capacity is and I'm going to honor my capacity and then I'm going to devote myself to a commitment of practice around my capacity. And if my capacity is three minutes every day, then that is still a practice because I don't know personally anyone who's living in a cave that has somebody bringing food and chai to them three times a day. That I, I'm, I'd love to do that, but I, <laughs> that is not the reality in the moment. So when you have kids and you have a job and you have a house and things and bills that you need to pay, honor your capacity and then create your practice around that. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. I feel like that, that segues pretty nicely into the next topic, which is that of tradition and lineage. Mm. And it's such an interesting conversation to have because there are you know, so many people in the yoga world that are completely uh, not even aware of yoga in the context of tradition or lineage. And then there's another population of folks who are you know, completely married to a tradition or a lineage. And, and then there's you know, everything kind of in between. And so I'm curious about how your relationship with lineage with tradition is evolving and mm. um, sort of what that looks like for you now, maybe as opposed to how it might've looked for you even 10 years ago. Um, and uh, we'll kind of let that maybe evolve into a conversation around post-lineage, what that mm. is, mm. what it means. Yeah, so, so the question is, what is lineage? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So lineage, as I understand it, is basically a tradition that has been passed down from teacher to student over thousands and thousands of years. And there are many lineages and many traditions. And some of those traditions have been broken uh, because teachers have stopped teaching or something has happened. A, a civilization has disappeared. And there are other lineages that claim that they are unbroken lineages that trace their teachings and they can trace the teachers all the way back to the original sages, right? Or the original rishis, the original seers of yoga. Um, the Himalayan tradition is one of those traditions that says that they can trace the, the lineages and the teachings back. And so the, the power of line, lineage is really about this power of transmission this power of the fact that there was a rishi somewhere in, in the forest who 
had a vision and had an understanding and created a teaching and had their students or people who were studying with them. And those students took the teachings and then those students basically did the teachings. They did the teachings, they did the practices, they embodied those practices and they developed the ability to be able to transmit those practices through their own understanding and their own knowing to their own students. Right. And so this is how it continues. So it's this idea of parampara, right, is the passing down of this information. And so lineage, um, I believe, is important because of that transmission. And that is not to say that if you are receiving teachings that are not, quote unquote, lineaged, that they're not powerful. Right. Because if we think about the rishis in the forest, they were doing, they were mimicking nature. They were looking at nature and they were receiving, literally receiving teachings from nature, right? They were receiving visions. And so that's not to say that someone who is a completely uninitiated teacher cannot be walking in the woods or, pra or practicing breathing in the woods and receive a teaching. Right? It happens all the time. It happens by grace, right? So for me, what I would say is um, lineage, as I understand it uh, first, as I first understood it, because I was first introduced to Kundalini Yoga, I understood that as a lineage. And then when I went into my kind of second Hatha Yoga uh, practice, uh, or learning of Hatha yoga, which I, at the time thought, well, wait a second, I've been practicing Kundalini. Isn't that yoga? What is this? <laughs> that I was told that that practice of Kundalini yoga was developed by Yogi Bhajan. It was developed by Yogi Bhajan. And so there are many other systems and traditions of yoga practices that have been developed by teachers that have had other teachings or multiple teachings that they've brought together to create a tradition or to create a school, right? So we could say para yoga is a very similar thing, like, you know, Rod Stryker, um, practiced with Manny Finger, right? Who was a, 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 a Bihar student and I believe also Shivananda. And then he also practiced with Gary Kraftsau and then came to practice with Pandit Rajamani Tiganayat. So there's, there's many threads that start to pull in, into these practices and into these systems that all come from beautiful lineages and then are expressed through the unique expression through a teacher, right? So we could really say, and my question would really be, where does post-lineage begin? Does post-lineage begin the moment that you take on another teacher and begin to incorporate those teachings? And by the way, I just want to say that Theo Wildcraft is the one who um, coined the phrase post-lineage, right? And my understanding without looking at her exact, def excuse me, my, that her, the definition without looking at their um, exact definition 
which you might want to put into the show notes, mm-hmm. is really this idea of receiving teachings, embodying those teachings, and then being able to, to sit with your cohort or to sit with your sangha, much like what we're doing right now, and to be able to discuss the things that have come through from the teachings and make your own assumptions, your own tuning into your own inner knowing, right? And comparing notes to come up with your own revelations around the teachings. And then going from that embodied place and being able to share them without necessarily having been taught something in a specific way. Right. Because a lot of times when we learn something in a lineage, which is very valuable, we learn X, Y, Z. This is how you do it. This is the order you do it in. This is how you teach it. Right. But then what happens when the practice is the teacher and you receive an additional knowing? Where does that fit in? Where does that fit in? I mean, I, I, you know, there are many times where I have received teachings from uh, teachers that are in a lineage or that have a lineage background that are not from X, Y, and Z. They're inspired by their own realizations, their own practices, their own connections with uh, teachers that are maybe even no longer embodied. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that um, there is great value in lineage teachings. They are the foundation of everything that I teach and share. And yet there are also um, you know, the teachings of Swami Veda Bharati in the Himalayan tradition are, they're just incredible. They're incredible. And yet you can also read some of his work, um, like my experiments with Yoga Nidra. You know, he, he really embraced this idea of the practice being the teacher. Right? As, as someone who basically developed his own system of deep relaxation at age eight, because he was exhausted and going around the country, but going around India, teaching as a sickly child, and then learning later that there was actually something called yoga nidra that he had been doing for 30 years, that, that didn't never, he was never taught that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tracy, what do you think Go about, ahead. Um, what do you think about, you know, we've spoken about discernment and we've spoken about, um, you know, doing this in practice mm. and this tend that we have to look outside of us for answers and you know that kind of thing and so i this is something that i you know think about a a little bit you know we we might come to a, a practice or a tradition or a lineage or you know something like that and we learn the 
the the steps of a particular practice or or whatever and and we do them and perhaps there's a sense in that where we're teaching ourselves to hear whatever is going on inside of us and um, turn inwards when it comes and, and then perhaps there's a point in time where we have an intuition or a sense of inner knowing or something that would take us beyond what we've learned or in a different direction or, or something like that what is your take on how do you know when that's appropriate mm. and how do you you know because there's something to be excavated there or there's something really to follow that aren't part of those steps and how do you know when to stick with those steps because there's more to be mined from that place mm, it's a rambling think, sort of a question no 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 it's perfect do you get what I'm yes right. <laughs> So here's the thing. I think you always have to continue to study because my experience has been that when I have those moments of, let's say, inspired downloads around practice and I continue deepening my study, I wind up finding the practice. I wind up finding the very thing that I, it's like, wait a second, I, this is the exact thing. Like, how is this already you know, it's literally like all of this information, I feel like is in the field, right? It's there for us to access. And, you know, the teachings of Tantra, and I, I just talked about this yesterday, actually, the teachings of Tantra are really meant to guide us back to our inner teacher, to our inner knowing. You know, the, that is the, the, the source of our, of our wisdom is inside. And so even though we may have practices from a lineage and we honor that lineage, if we're being guided to our inner teacher, as I understand this teaching from Pandit Rajmani Tiganayat, is that eventually we, have, we let go of the outer guru and we have that outer guru, that outer teacher and the connection to that teacher because of honor and because of reverence and because of deep gratitude for all of the teachings that have led the way to this inner teacher. And then we continue to let the inner teacher guide the way. So the question that I hear in your question is when is that moment <laughs> of moving towards the inner teacher? And, a, and away from the outer teacher. And to me, I feel like it's a riding of both. It's a, it's a riding of both. I have many teachers in my life and I also have my own knowing, right? And I think that having a balance of those because so that you are continuing to learn because hopefully your own teachers are also continuing to learn on the path. And that there's, it's like this ever flowing fountain of being able to receive wisdom, not only from your own practice, but because your teachers hopefully have not stopped growing. Your teachers haven't said, oh, I've got it. I've got a great program and I'm just gonna 
keep this going and I'm not going to practice anymore. Hopefully that is not happening. Because if that's the case and you, and your teachers are also still learning and still growing and that you see them going out and learning and getting more, you know, practice and doing their own sadhanas and sabbaticals, then you know that it's this ever evolving thing. It, consciousness wants to expand. Thank you. You are welcome. <laughs> I feel like there's a big conversation to be had around trust as well in this in this mm. whole process, um, mm. and where to place trust and how to develop trust within ourselves um, mm -hmm. as well. Um, and that kind of leads me to another question that we were hoping we would have time for. And we've got a couple minutes left, so I think we can sneak it in there. Um, and and it's, it's really about your relationship with the divine um, mm. and your relationship with the goddess, if that's, you know, a word that you like to use to describe the divine. Um, mm. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you introduced me to the, the tantric forms of the divine feminine. And it was like, a, it was a, it was a world changing moment for me. Um, and I just would love to hear you talk a little bit about how your relationship has, has developed um, and what it, what it looks like and yeah, whatever you're inspired to share. Yeah, that's a big, big question. That's a whole nother book all in itself. Um, you know, what I would say is my relationship has evolved from feeling as though I have to do all the holding to knowing that I'm held. My relationship has evolved from being able to feel grace and divinity in most moments, even in the, even in the hardest moments, still being able to feel and sense the presence of divinity, the, the presence of the goddess. And so, um, to kind of answer both questions from Karina and you around practice. So in the, right now, in this moment, the practice that I am doing is a practice around the moon and the goddesses um, that represent each one of the phases of the moon. And so that's, um, that's a practice that's happening now and tuning in to the energy of each of those goddesses and bringing that energy into my nidra practice that I do prior to falling asleep and moving that into the dream world and then translating that, whatever the teaching is, translating that upon waking in the hypnopompic state and then using that wisdom to weave throughout the day and then moving back into when the new moon, when the moon is rising again, and I have a little 
kind of drawing practice and a mantra practice that I do around that. And that is a way of weaving in this through 24 hour cycle, because that's really the yoga is the 24 hour cycle that when the yoga is, is flowing through all the states of consciousness and not just when you're in the practice of yoga nidra, but when you're in the practice of life, that is a full practice of yoga. That is when life can become a ritual and anybody has access to that. Anybody has access to that. That is not something that you need to receive from a teacher. You can literally do this on your own right now. Beautiful, thank you. Mm. <laughs> that was perfect. Like, wake up. <laughs> um, I wonder if we could finish with this very last question. Mm. Uh, which is you have recently written a beautiful book, Radiant Rest, all about the, oh yeah, and it's, ah, it's delicious, <laughs> all about the practice of yoga nidra. Mm. And so I feel like maybe this is a, 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 a good final question. Um, and it's kind of two questions, mm. but why yoga nidra mm. and why now? Mm. Well, you know, here we go with the, the question about the practice being a teacher. Um, I was working on a completely different book project uh, that had a chapter about yoga nidra, but it was not a yoga nidra book. And I had no intention of writing a book about yoga nidra at all. <laughs> and within the space of a, like a month, I got a couple of inquiries from publishers asking if I was interested in writing a book on yoga nidra. So the first inquiry, I said, no, flat out. And the second inquiry came after I had written a list of the publishers that I was interested in hopefully publishing the book that I was writing on, that I was writing at the moment. Um, and it happened within five minutes, I got this email from an editor at Shambhala. And so I was like, oh, well, I better pay attention to what's in this email because I just wrote down Shambhala publications on this list. And the request was asking, am I interested in writing a book on Yoga Nidra? And so my response was no, because there's this person writing a book and there's that person writing a book. And there's these books that are really good. And no, I'm already working on this. Are you interested in reading this other thing? And, you know, I, I started to uh, think about, okay, well, this is the second time in a month. I'm going to just surrender my ego, my intellect around this and just see if there's any signs that appear. And that weekend I was teaching in Whistler uh, a yoga nidra immersion. And after the class, there were like seven or eight people who asked, do you have a book? on yoga nidra. And I thought, this is very bizarre because no one has ever asked me that question before. And now I have all these people asking a question about the book. Uh, so I came back home and I sat down and I really sat to myself and said, well, what do I have to offer about the practice of yoga nidra? 
what do I have to offer? And what I felt that I had to offer as I started to write down, like kind of in points of what did I have to offer and uh, like a mind map, it was, I have to offer the fact that I have a relationship with Yoga Nidra beyond the technique. I have a relationship with the technique and the practice for over 20 years. I have a relationship with the goddess. I have a relationship with the state of consciousness or the states between. And what I, what I hope for people when I share the practice is not that they do it exactly how I'm saying, oh, this is how you should do it but that they actually cultivate a relationship with Yoga Nidra in this way, meaning their own way. And so if I have tools that I can offer to lead into this portal of awakening towards awakening your own relationship with this practice, then that's something that I have to offer. And so I just continue to write down, what are my, what are my portals? My portals are life as a ritual. My portals are householder flow, being able to know that I can do these practices in three minutes if I need to. My portals are nature. My portals are mantra. And so that's how the book came to be. So I wrote these things down. I sent them to the publisher and, with, and I had a book deal. So that's, that's how it happened. And I believe that the answer to the why now is I had nothing to do with this. This, this was not my doing. This, this was something that was in the field and I was listening, not the first time, but usually it takes me, you know, after the first time knocking on the head, then I listen. Mm -hmm. So the listening uh, of what ne needed to happen, the tuning in to what needed to happen. And you know, I turned the book in, the manuscript in, um, on February 28th of 2020. So it was actually prior to the pandemic. Um, but in the listening, because I was writing the book from the space of transition. So I was putting into practice the very thing that I asked people to do, which is writing in that place. It's like my, my, my writing room was a desk, a yoga nidra nest, my harmonium, and my hang drum. And I would go, and people have joked about this being like circuit training. So I would go, <laughs> I would go from station to station, you know, depending on what was happening. And I was writing in that space of in the space in between. So it wasn't me writing about some of the things that seem very on point for right now, because people have said, wow, I can't believe this book is coming out now because it's so relevant to what is happening in the world. I was receiving that information. I was receiving the direction as practice of the teacher, what needs to be included here. And so the why now has literally nothing to do with me. It is not mine. And that is why I put the book in the fire the day it came out because it doesn't belong to me. <laughs> there's, there's nothing to say. <laughs> there's 
nothing to say, but um, I recognize that this is a podcast, so I suppose we ought to say something. <laughs> um, I think, I think from both of us, probably the first thing that we want to say is just a huge thank you. Um, not not just for being here, but just thank you for leading in the way that you do, um, and for sharing your path and your experience um, so generously and so candidly it really it really lights up a, a way of being with these teachings and within tradition um, that is so inspiring and so liberating um, for those of us who who do love being rooted in tradition but who are craving that space for it to live and breathe through us in its own unique way and embodying the goddess as much as we possibly can and letting her letting her come up and through us um, just the way that you so beautifully described um, with the way that she wrote the book for you <laughs> or you wrote the book for her or in tandem or whatever happened there. Um, so just a, a huge heartfelt Thank you for so um, boldly and um, determinedly living your dharma and, mm -hmm. and setting that example for so many of us that watch. Mm. Thank you. I so appreciate that reflection. Very grateful. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. So too. You know, you were a, uh, a portal for me when I was looking for permission to trust my intuition. So um, that's been a, a, a big theme for me over the last little while. And, and you've uh, definitely been a significant part of that process. Mm, thank you, Karina. Well, we can thank our teachers and the teachers before them and the teachers before them and our greatest teacher an oldest ancestor, this earth and this moon and this sun, which is so beautiful that that happens to be part of the name of your, your podcast. Those are the wisdom keepers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to just mention again, Tracy's book. Now that I'm talking, hopefully my, my little picture will show up on the podcast on the recording. So here is Tracy's book, it's called Radiant Rest. And we will uh, be giving away a copy of Radiant Rest as well as a deck of Tracy's Oracle cards. Um, so we'll include some details on how that's actually going to happen, but those are being very generously given uh, by Tracy. Um, so we're excited about that. We will also include information on how you can learn more about Tracy and seek out opportunities to practice and study with her. Uh, Karina and I both practice and study with her and just simply cannot recommend anything more. <laughs> <laughs> Plain and simple. And I'm sure that all of you who are listening and watching um, will are already understanding why, why that is. Um, gosh, I don't know if there's anything else that we that we would need to cover, Karina. Anything else? Yeah, so just again, a huge, huge thank you for all of the things. <laughs> thank you both. Thank you both for being a light, uh, two lights, one light <laughs> in the world. 
um, and sharing, sharing all of your wisdom and all of your teachings. Uh, it's very important for us to be able to, to share. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. We love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sun, The Moon, and The Truth. And if so, you might be interested in our upcoming 300-hour Embodied Shakti Yoga Teacher Training, where we'll dive in-depth into many of the topics we discussed today. If you're interested in learning more about the Divine Feminine, about Dharma, about Bhakti, Sanskrit, Yoga Nidra, Mantra, and more, head to karinaguthriyoga.com. You'll find all the information you need to take this sacred journey with us, and we'll leave a direct link in the show notes for you as well.